What would you do if you knew that you were going to die tomorrow? What would you do if you knew that the forces of evil were coming for you? That the empire had set its sights on you and your people? If your life felt uh, desperate, if the next step felt hopeless, what would you do? Most of us uh, don't have to answer this question, although many of us have felt like, <laughs> felt like we did. But Jesus did have to answer that question. Jesus knew what was coming for him. Jesus knew that the empire had targeted him. Jesus knew that he was going to be executed unjustly, right? Jesus knew that his best friend was going to betray him. And what did he do? He invited his friends to have a really great dinner, a really beautiful Last Supper where they probably talked all night long, I like to imagine, um, where they shared in joy, where they remembered not just the bread, the body, the blood, the life, but where they remembered their happy times together. That time that Peter tripped on the road, <laughs> or that time that Thomas said that really dumb thing, <laughs> right? They remembered, they felt joyful, because this is what we do because it is our option. Find joy in the midst of places where it seems like there is no joy. And then three days later, in the resurrection, Jesus did it again. <laughs> Find joy in a place that looked like no joy, in a place that looked like hurt and looked like oppression. This is our journey, and this is what we're talking about today. And before I invite our panel up here, who are gonna be teaching you amazing things and telling you about their lives, I want to show you something that happened in the last couple of weeks that I think did the same thing. Took a source of pain and a source of hurt and made a little bit of joy out of it. So let's play, and some of you may recognize this. So kimchi is a local. Kimchi is from Chicago. Um, she also, this song, right, is a reference, some of you may know, to something that you'll see on a lot of uh, dating websites that she may have been on. No fats, no femmes, no Asians. Anybody ever seen that? Something that they were looking for? Yeah. So um, that is, right, hurtful. That is painful. That comes from racism. That comes from uh, bodyism. That comes from sexism. But Kim Chi done leaned into it, <laughs> right? She's like, yes. I see all that you are throwing at me. I see all that you don't appreciate about me. I see all that you don't like about me. Um, here is me loving it. Here is me being in it. Here is me singing Korean on RuPaul's Drag Race, wearing whatever dress I want, <laughs> and finding joy in the midst of what you are throwing at me. So joy and the race, the, the, uh, race resistance can be found. And it can be found on RuPaul's Drag Race, as well as everywhere else. So let's remember that, and let's invite up our panel speakers. Thank you, and welcome to, all right, I want to say their names, guys, Chris Sanders, Sanjay Kumar, and Kirk Vaklavik. Yay! Woohoo! So first, we want to hear a little bit from you about how your experience of race and racism was informed growing up. Where did it come from? Sanjay, let's start with you. Hi. Um, I'm Sanjay. Uh, so uh, to start with, to explain, my, so my dad is Indian and my mom is white. So I grew up um, mixed in a mostly white community. Um, growing up, though, I didn't really, for the most part, I didn't see racism in my everyday life targeted towards me 
or to people who looked like me. Uh, but one thing that stuck out to me uh, that I experienced as I was growing up was seeing um, my dad would, so my dad travels a lot for business, or traveled a lot for business, and so he would go and he would fly places, and when he'd be going through TSA, a lot of times he'd be taken aside. Um, so basically he'd be profiled and taken aside for extra screening because of how he looked or how he acted or, or something like that. Um, and when my parents talked to me about that, um, instead of, I, I, their response was generally to be like, oh, well, that's just the people in TSA are doing their job. Um, that's how things work. Uh, and that made me feel uncomfortable then, but I kind of just like, it wasn't happening to me directly, and it was really like my dad's choice how we want to deal with that, right? Um, but then I grew up and I started traveling more on my own. And I would go through TSA and I wouldn't get pulled aside. Like I, I never got profiled in that way. And so I had a lot of, so at that point I realized that, um, that there, was, there was something going on there, something that my, my dad experienced that I didn't. Uh, and thinking about how that's, that partially that's, that's race, right? Um, he looks very different than like a standard white American and I look a little bit more, um, more white, I guess. Uh, but also there is, there's this level of, I speak English like an American, I look very American in like how I dress and how I act. Um, and my dad, even though he's an American citizen, is, um, still speaks with something of an accent, um, is still kind of more foreign that way. And so it's, and so that was one thing that I like saw, it was like, oh, look, race is still here in my life. Mm. Kirk, how was your understanding of race and racism informed growing up? Uh, mine was very much by my church and my school. I grew up in North Dallas, where the only thing bigger than the cars in the churches are the insecurities. Um, <laughs> if, you've, if you've ever read like one of those like Vox.com or Elite Daily articles where they use the term white fragility, um, it's very much on display there, which is um, where everyone, um, well, I'll, I'll tell it this way, that. Um, I grew up on a, on, on a block where it was actually, like statistically and from the outside, looked extremely diverse racially and ethnically. Out of like 14 or 15 houses, only two were white families. Um, but when we would all grow, we all grew up playing on, you know, on our block together. But then at about like six years old or so, it was time to go to school. And the two white homes sent their kids to private Christian schools. And all the other kids on the block ended up um, going to the public school down the street. From there, the, the striation um, only got um, more, more polarized. Um, I went to a private Christian school that was probably like 99% white um, with a couple like Asian American students too. Um, and we would go on mission trips every summer um, for like two weeks at a time. We'd go to places like the Dominican Republic or um, Guatemala or Honduras and every summer we would do this and we would like build orphanages but it was every summer was the white kids um, and non-white people um, were, the, were the audience being served so to speak um, and I, I think that that's kind of the context that I come from that um, time and time again this, this difference was reinforced um, for, for me, um, and often um, non-white people were, were othered. So that's kind of like a, a vague setting of kind of the context that I come from. Yeah, and from the church a lot too, it sounds like. Yeah. Chris, how was your understanding of race and racism informed? So uh, growing up, I was uh, actually 
from, I'm, well, I am still <laughs> from the South side. And so, um, everything was black and I was like, didn't really interact or really see very many white people until college. And so, uh, I wound up going to a, a Christian university too. It's private and expensive. <laughs> and so, um, I just really kind of went into everything with a very optimistic eye, like, oh, people are good people, it is, you know, it is what it is, like, people on TV are really nice, so I feel like, figure, like when you meet real white people in real life, they'll be nice too, <laughs> but you got those, like, weird questions, like, about your hair and stuff like that, and it was always kind of, like, a little weird, but still, like, okay, you're asking questions, I have questions too, so let's just kind of dialogue about it. Um, that ultimately culminated in me, like, dating a, a white girl, and she was from Indiana, and I remember I went to their house to have dinner, and her stepfather, her middle brother, and her oldest brother were all um, like not in favor of the relationship based on race. And I remember when we had dinner there, and um, the stepfather wouldn't talk to me. And I was like super insulted, like, dude, you talk to dogs. Like, how do you not talk to a human being? And it was just kind of hurtful and kind of informed me that, okay, racism is still alive, it's still a thing. And I just try to like, make sure I know that not every person is like that and that everyone has their own thoughts and you have to give everyone opportunity to show their true colors. So. so some of us grew up in segregated environments, some of us homogenous environments, right? Some of us were taught to really think about the differences and some of us that came really late in life. For all of us, right, now we live in a society that has racism embedded in the, in the soup, in the thing. What are some ways that you resist that racism as you come upon it um, in your life and in your community? Kirk, what's one way that you have found? Yeah, um, I actually, in where, where I, when I think of where I encounter racism, I actually think first to my own community, the LGBTQ community is where I, I see racism manifest in terms of language um, and even um, self-separating sometimes. Um, like for example, um, going out to the bars here in Boys Town or back home in Dallas, going out to those bars, especially here at there, of, um, of white friends and even sometimes non-white friends um, saying things like, oh, the, that bar over there, that's like the ghetto bar, or look at that, that's like the, the ethnic bar, whatever that means. Um, and in, in moments like that, it's, it's kind of like, what, what, do you, what do you do? Do you like throw a fit and leave and separate ways? Or, or do you just let it pass? And, and there have been a time or two where my reaction has been kind of like, what do you mean by like, that's the ghetto bar? Like, what, is, what does that mean? Because something that I know growing up is that we were, e even the way that it's almost like awkward for me to talk about like my experience with race publicly is that things are coded um, and you have to like kind of decode um, because we have, we have a lot of um, linguistic hoops to go through. Um, so saying the word ghetto, it's like, what, what are you actually saying, saying there? Because you, you think you're not directly remarking that it's racial difference, but there's something suggested there for sure. Yeah, and this is, um, I'm also white, like Kirk and like some of the other people in this room, and we were talking before, this is one thing that white people have a real, I think, power and responsibility to do, is that white people will say things in front of you sometimes that they wouldn't say in front of other people, because they assume that you're on that team, right? And you can say, no, white, white people does not equal racist. <laughs> you have the power to also try and not be racist. We can do that together, <laughs> and to enter into that education and that process with them. Um, what's a way that you have found yourself resisting, uh, Chris? So I, um, it's like a hobby. I run a YouTube channel 
And yeah. so I try. I'm Tell like, them the name of your YouTube channel, Chris. <laughs> it's my name. <laughs> if, you type, uh, Chris if you type Chris Sanders in YouTube or nerdyvideos.com in any URL, you'll find it. Um, so anyway, so oh wait, I've got the question. I got excited. Oh, so what do I do to resist racism? Yes. Thank you. Yes. So um, basically on my YouTube channel, I do like nerdy videos about nerdy things, but also do nerd empowerment. And then I also take like a moment every now and again to discuss race and like racism in situations that happened to me. And I kind of just share those stories and try to just talk about them like very starkly with the community I've built and then try to foster like conversation around that. And it tends to really open up people to kind of like because you know that uh, the anonymous, I guess anonymity, mm. anonymous nature of the internet <laughs> allows yeah. you to be able to kind of be more free to share like your real thoughts, and so I just try to have real conversations like that. So I kind of resist by putting like the stories out there and the ideas out there, so everyone can you know collaborate and talk about it and talk about why it's not okay. Yeah, absolutely. Sanjay, what's one way one way you found to resist? Okay, um, so. I live in a in an intentional community co-op down the south side, well, southwest-ish, um, and just so because of the the nature of the history of the area and how co-ops work, um, when people come and want to apply to live in the house, like the vast majority of people who are applying are white, um, and there has been times in the past where the co-op coming from a, coming from I think somewhat a good impulse that a lot of a lot of like liberal people have um, wanting to be more inclusive um, whenever like someone who is, um, who, is, who is not like white from a middle class background comes and applies to live there, um, they'll be like, oh yeah, we should just let this person in because diversity or something. Um, and, that, and that actually is a lot of times a real problem because instead of, instead of looking at people like as full people, you're to they're tokenizing them. And one thing that my co-op has been doing to try and keep that from happening is to make sure to have honest conversations Whenever people are coming to live in the house, about like the fact that, or naming the fact that there may be racial or sexist prejudices and how we think about um, people who are applying, and to make sure to like counteract that, but at the same time not tokenize people by saying by just like bringing them in without taking into account like maybe they're not actually a good fit for this sort of intentional community. Uh, so that's those intentional conversations are a really powerful way that you can resist racism and structuring it in like smaller groups. Yeah, tokenizing can be just as dehumanizing, right? So part of it is, I think all three of you have talked about re responding in conversation when things come up, starting new conversations when they're not happening, and improving the conversation when you see real problems in the way that it's being defined in your workplace or in your home or on YouTube. Um, our third question really gets to this question of joy, right? Where do we find the joy and the resilience and the happiness in difficult things, in the struggle? Um, living in a racist society, experiencing racism, or just attempting to combat it can be exhausting or depressing or confusing. Where do you find something to sustain you in that? Where do you find joy and happiness in that? And I'm thinking of you first, Chris, because I get depressed reading any YouTube's comment section. <laughs> I think reading ones that are about your conversation that you are facilitating about race could be particularly like some fraught. But it sounds like for you, it's, it's been this positive experience. So how did you make it that, and, and what happened to make it that for you? I mean, I feel like I got like, it's the right people like, supporting me when they started watching my channel. So like, if anyone says anything racist or kind of mean, the community will jump all over that person. Like, 
they're like, oh, get out of here. I'm like, what are you doing? I'm like, you shouldn't be doing that. So uh, that helps a lot. And then I think uh, beyond that, it's just like people and community really, you know, driven me to try to push things in that positive light. Yeah. So you have a community, but you've also taught people to be your community, yeah. it sounds like. Yeah, kind of like just try to put the right message out. So if you're going to like come watch my videos, you kind of know there's an idea that I'm trying to like show positivity. I'm trying to show love. I'm trying to show grace. I'm trying to kind of sneak the Jesus in there a little bit. And I think that... <laughs> Sneaky Jesus is one of my favorite Jesuses. <laughs> <laughs> so then it just kind of helps to like build that. So. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Kirk, what's one place you find sustenance or joy for the journey? Yeah, well, hearing that it's... Like my my first reaction is kind of related to my answer is kind of like how it it seems to be different in so many different situations where sometimes it's like things just need to get shut down and sometimes it's like okay I should react with grace here just like I would hope someone would react with grace to me and that's a tricky thing that I just want to remark on um, I when I think about that question for myself like where do, how do I experience grace and how do I then experience like joy in this and have hope in this, I think about like my own story with like overcoming homophobia and the way that that kept me in the closet and how sometimes I, you know, I still find these remnants of homophobia still like coming into my brain and coming into like my view of other people. And I have to think about how different I was a decade ago um, to where I am now. And so when I do find that I still have like remnants and probably will be dealing with these for a while, remnants of like of, of prejudice um, inside of me because it is something that, it, that helps to like raise you, um, that that can be really discouraging. Um, but I have to just kind of trust that um, if, I'm, if I'm moving forward in other areas of understanding and changing my, my initial reaction to things in other areas of my life that I can in this too. Um, something I said to these guys beforehand was that I'd, I'd be a fool to say that I don't deal with prejudice. If I'm a gay man still struggling with homophobia, then I'm absolutely also a white man still struggling with um, the prejudice that was uh, taught to me. Yeah, but you're working on it, right? Yeah. We're all working on it. <laughs> this is the journey with Jesus. <laughs> Sanjay, how do you find joy and hope in, in the journey? Yeah, um, so I... I found this really cool community. It's an organization that's for queer Asian Pacific Islander people. Um, but a lot of the people who are in it are very like conscious or woke. They have a um, they have like woke. a good analysis of how of how the world works, how race works. And when I'm with those people, I I can be at home because these these are like identities that are being affirmed there. But also at the same time, like we are always constantly working to see how we can be better. And that to me brings a lot of joy that there's like this community around me that's going in the direction that I want to go. So one of the things we talked about is wanting to think of ourselves as whole people. And I think one of the ways that God gives us this gift of joy is that we are people who have identities in which we experience um, prejudice, bigotry, uh, oppression. But we also are not just those things, right? We're full people doing things all the time. So what are some of the ways that you experience joy and God in the world? Just let's like embrace joy. What's something that makes you joyful? What's a place that you experience God? And let's start with you this time, Sanjay. Oh, sure. Um, so board games. I like to play games with my friends. That's right. Uh, yeah, I had a board game night last night, and it was really great. Yeah, amazing. Kirk? Um, I think it's in, 
hearing people's stories to be a little bit of a 2016 cliche of like storytelling. Um, <laughs> but, but honestly, I think that's why things like the moth and whatnot are so popular and powerful right now is because we're entering this era of like, hey, let's be vulnerable with each other because hearing each other's stories is so impactful. Um, as life would have it, my two best friends happen uh, that I made like eight years ago or so. One happens to be biracial and one happens to be a black gay man which are things I could have never predicted even at, at the time. Um, and I still am having so, so much to learn. And from um, my, my friend who's a black gay man living in New York, he's over the last year decided to make a very conscious effort to share his story on Facebook. And some people criticize that like, hey, what's it gonna do if that you write a Facebook post? But I think with something like prejudice, hearing someone's story is like that key to empathy and is that like that opposition to prejudice. Um, and I, I really appreciate the way that he's told stories over the last year that have just woke me up um, to like realities in the, in the smallest moments that I, that I wasn't aware of. Chris, where's a place you find joy? Yeah, I, I feel like a broken record, but like, um like relationship is like a really big thing. I mean, I feel like we learn a lot from each other and each other's experiences and being able to share those things. So kind of like the stories. Um, I said this to you guys earlier, but like, I feel like my current relationship with my girlfriend has like been one of the most challenging, but also most rewarding things I've like ever experienced. Like, and I learned so much like from that, from like the joy part of it, and even like the difficult parts that I think that I can like, it's brought me closer to God because it's made me have to confront like myself and things I haven't really had to deal with because I didn't have to, you know, now I have someone else I care about that makes me have to want to be a better person, it makes me want to have to work on things and it's really, really interesting to see that and to say at the same time, like, witness the joy when you do change things or you do find yourself in a better place. So, yeah. yeah. When our relationships are in love, they can both... Um, support us right when we need it when we're feeling not at home but also challenge us in a way that's not terrifying but fruitful challenge us to see where we're at with god challenge us to find more joy but also challenge us to resist both the racism we find in our everyday life and the structures that are reinforcing it all the time in our world I really hear from you guys that community is a big part of how you learn and a big part of how you grow and a big part of where you find safety and joy and grace and love in those times when you need it. Um, and that's the same place where Jesus found it, right? He didn't face that last night alone. He brought together his community. He brought together his people. He had a meal in the midst of deep, deadly, times that were filled with injustice and pain and sorrow, he brought together the community to eat a meal together because that is one of the most powerful things that we can ever do to sustain us for whatever journey we are on, personal or structural, in a world that is racist, in a world where we lose people, in a world where we lose each other, but in a world where there is always hope for that grace to get better for us to be resilient and like kimchi, live into the parts of ourselves that the world says are wrong, because we know that Jesus made us to be who we are. We know that Jesus made us to be as diverse as we are, and we know that Jesus set a table for all of us to eat at together and to see the majesty in who other people are, even when it surprises us. And for these three especially, who have been vulnerable and honest with you about who they are and what their experiences are and what journey they're on, 
we give extraordinary thanks. Thank you, guys.